You are listening to Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. You take your Bibles now and turn with me to the book of Revelation and chapter 10. If you're using the Pew Bible, this is found on page 1033. As we come to chapter 10, we are encountering another intermission or interlude in one of the acts of God's divine drama that Christ is revealing to the Apostle John. As you recall, we've actually encountered such an intermission before between the sixth and seventh seal. So too here, between the sixth and seventh trumpet, we have another intermission. Now, both intermissions come, don't they, after harrowing visions of God's judgment upon the wicked. You remember how the sixth seal there, uh, the people of the earth, those who are earth dwellers, the rebels against Christ, are crying out for the rocks to fall upon them, to cover them from the wrath of God and the wrath of the Lamb. You remember how we saw last week in chapter 9, as the sixth trumpet is blown, and there you have these kind of demonic attacks upon the wicked, tormenting them. And so we have this then interlude where the shift occurs, a shift in focus from the wicked to Christ's church. You recall then the intermission in Revelation chapter 7, the intermission in the seals act. It's speaking to us and assuring us as Christ's church that in the midst of the tribulations that we experience in this world, God has sealed us and he has secured us and we are safe in Christ. Here then, as we come to this intermission, it's telling us, dear church, reminding us That though Satan and his demons rage even now, our Lord Jesus reigns over all. And he has given a clear commission to his church in this time of tribulation between his first and second comings. So follow along as I will read the entire chapter. And we'll start with verse 1 of Revelation 10. Hear now God's holy word. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, wrapped in a cloud with a rainbow over his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs like pillars of fire. He had a little scroll open in his hand, and he set his right foot on the sea, and his left foot on the land, and called out with a loud voice like a roaring lion. When he called out, the seven thunders sounded, And when the seven thunders had sounded, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. And the angel whom I saw standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven and swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created heaven and what is in it, the earth and what is in it and the sea and what is in it, that there would be no more delay. But that in the days of the trumpet call to be sounded by the seventh angel, the mystery of God would be fulfilled, 
just as he announced to his servants the prophets. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel, who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. Then he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Amen. Let us go again to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, as we come once again to your holy word, we're reminded of the words of the psalmist when he said that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul, that the testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple, that the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, that the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. Lord, this is what we pray, that this word this morning would revive our souls, make us wise, rejoice our hearts, enlighten our eyes, and that truly your word would be more desirable to us than gold and would be sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. Would you work this spiritual work in our hearts? Through your word we pray in Christ's name, amen. Have you ever unexpectedly been moved from being a spectator to becoming a participant? What do I mean? Perhaps you've had the experience of going to an amusement park with uh, your family, a place like Disney World, maybe with your young children or even your grandchildren. And perhaps like our family, uh, you create a general plan, not super detailed, but a general plan of what you're going to do in that day when you go to Disney World. Which rides you're going to try to go to when, um, what order you're planning to do them. And if you're a parent with young children, you make sure that in your plan, you include a time where you will take in one of the shows, don't you? One of the shows so that in the afternoon, perhaps, you can take a break from the heat, from standing in the long lines, right? A time to recover from the dizziness of rotating in teacups and going upside down in roller coasters so you can have a few moments of rest. And so you go and you sit down and, and just as you're catching your breath, what happens? Those on the stage who are meant to entertain you come off of the stage and before you know it, you and your child are actually on that stage as well. And you've been drawn in. You've unexpectedly been moved from being a spectator to becoming a participant. And that's something like what the Apostle John experiences at times in these visions, isn't it? That he's watching what's going on, carefully writing it down, this divine drama. Then all of a sudden, an elder steps forward and asks him a question. Who are these dressed in white? Or like this vision... A voice from heaven speaks and he's told to go and actually take a scroll and eat it himself. He's drawn into the divine drama. That's true for us as well, isn't it, beloved? 
as we read God's word, as we hear it preached, we learn that we too are caught up not only as spectators of God's divine drama, but also as participants. So this morning I want us to consider these two main images in this vision and how we are caught up with them into it. And so what are these two main images? And it's this, we'll see first the mighty angel and our encouragement in verses 1 to 7. And then secondly, the little scroll and our commission in verses 8 to 11. So the mighty angel and our encouragement and the little scroll and our commission. So first then, this mighty angel. Who is this mighty angel that appears? Well, if you remember what we've seen before, this is not the first time that John has seen a mighty angel. Now, he's seen many angels, but only one other time do we have someone described as a mighty angel. If you recall, that's in chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 2 reads this. It says, And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? There, we see the mighty angel referring to the scroll that's in God's hand as he's on the throne, as it were. And that only, John learns, is one worthy. The one who is the lion of the tribe of Judah and at the same time the lamb who was slain. He alone is worthy to take that scroll from God's hand and to open its seals, as we saw in chapter 6 and 7. But here we see this mighty angel is also connected to a scroll, isn't he? He himself is holding a scroll, a little scroll this time, not to be taken by the lamb, but actually to be taken by John. And we'll come to understand more of what that scroll is a little bit later in this message. But so we've seen this mighty angel, or at least another mighty angel before. Well, I want you to notice how this mighty angel is described. You see it there in verse 1, don't you? He's described with the colors and images that we've heard before. Colors and images that have been used to describe the Lord Jesus Christ and God himself in earlier visions. This angel comes wrapped in a cloud, it says in verse 1. Well, in chapter 1, verse 7, Jesus Christ is described as the one who is coming on the clouds. He's described here as having a rainbow over his head, this mighty angel. And didn't we see God on the throne in chapter 4 with a rainbow, an emerald rainbow, rainbow around his throne? He's, this angel is described as having his face shining like the sun. Revelation chapter 1, verse 16, the son of man's face is described as like the sun shining with full strength. This angel has pillars Legs like pillars of fire. The Lord Jesus, the Son of Man, in chapter 1, was described as having feet of burnished bronze, like that which had been refined in a furnace. The voice of this angel is described in verse 3 as like a roaring lion. And who is the lion of the tribe of Judah but the Lord Jesus? You see the similarities, don't you? And because of these similarities, some view this angel as the Lord Jesus Christ himself, as that angel of the Lord that's often described in the Old Testament who has divine attributes that some fall down and worship. And that is certainly possible. 
But I would submit to you that it seems more likely that this mighty angel is actually not the Lord Jesus himself, but one who has been sent by the Lord Jesus. Sent by Christ, coming from the very presence of Christ to John. In that way, this angel is kind of like Moses. You remember how Moses would go into the tent of meeting and there he would meet with God. And God would speak to him as a man speaking to a friend face to face. And when Moses came out of that tent of meeting, what happened? But his face would shine and he would have to put a veil over his face. And this angel then is one who's come from the very presence of the Lamb and come to John. Why do I say that? For a few reasons. In the book of Revelation, Jesus is almost always described as the conquering lamb. And the language or the word angel is consistently used to designate Christ's heavenly servants. Also, this kind of description of the angel is the same kind of description we find for an angel in Daniel chapter 10. I'm not going to turn there, but you could do that later this afternoon to see that. But even more so, I think it fits with what we learn at the very beginning of the book of Revelation. Remember what Revelation 1.1 says. It says this, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant, John. Do you see the chain of transmission God makes this wondrous revelation known to Jesus Christ. Jesus then gives it to an angel who then takes it to John. And John then is to proclaim it to the world. And isn't that what we've seen back in chapter 5 when Christ the Lamb takes the scroll from the hand of God the Father? That's Jesus receiving the revelation from God. And now then he's given it to this angel and this angel has come to John. So these intimate connections between the imagery used to describe our Lord Jesus Christ and this mighty angel reveal that this angel has been in the presence of Christ, received the message of Christ, and comes representing Christ. As Dennis Johnson writes, the radiance of the angel's appearance marks him as one who bears the image of his maker reflecting the master's glory as he brings the master's message. So this mighty angel is a messenger from our almighty king, Jesus Christ. So that's who this angel is. But but what does this vision of the mighty angel communicate to John and communicate to us? What is he seeking to teach us and reveal to us by this vision? And here I want you to notice three things that he's teaching us. And the first is this, the absolute sovereignty of the Lamb. The absolute sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice what this representative of our Lord Jesus does in verse 2. This giant angel places his right foot on the land and his left foot right on the sea there. What's he doing? You recall in the Old Testament that placing a foot upon something was an act of conquest and of possession. 
Maybe you remember when Joshua and the Israelites took the land, the promised land and the conquest, particularly in Joshua chapter 10, and they defeated the five kings. When they defeated those five kings, what did Joshua do? He called the chief men of war to come and take those kings, bow them down, and each one of them put their foot on the neck of those kings. It was a symbol, a sign, showing that God had conquered through them and that they were taking possession of the land. So you see what this mighty representative of the Lord Jesus Christ is saying by placing his feet in this way. What we have is a magnificent picture of the lordship of Jesus Christ over the earth, over the land, over the sea, that Jesus is the one who's been given all authority in heaven and on earth. And he has claimed every inch of this earth for himself. Isn't this what Paul reminds us with that wonderful words at the end of Ephesians chapter 1? It says that God the Father has placed our Lord Jesus far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. He put all things under his feet. And gave him as head over all things to the church. What an encouragement this should be for us, isn't it? For our souls to be reminded as subjects of King Jesus that he rules over all. Beloved, what this means is no matter what's happening in this earth, no matter what's happening in your life, no matter what trials, what troubles, what sorrows, what afflictions, Jesus reigns. Jesus reigns. Even though the satanic forces of evil are at work in our world, even now, as we saw last week, Jesus reigns even over them. And he is ruling over all things, as Paul tells us, to the church, or better translated, for the church. It's what Romans 8.28 is communicating to us. That Christ, by his sovereign authority, is working all things together for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. All things are for our good and for his glory, beloved Christian. And so this vision teaches us, communicates to us the sovereignty of the Lamb. But it also communicates to us the secrecy of God's ways or maybe the inscrutability of of God's ways, doesn't it? This is what we see in verses three and four. This angel, this mighty angel, he roars in his voice like a lion as he speaks. And when he does so, John tells us that there's a response. Something in creation responds. There are seven thunders that sound back to him. And John hears them. And it appears that he understands something about them. And immediately, he's looking for his writing instruments so that he can begin recording what he has heard. And then a voice speaks and says to him, Do not write what you have heard, but seal them up. So what was it that John heard? What, what was it that these seven thunders actually said? I have no idea. Because <laughs> John doesn't tell us. <laughs> 
Some have speculated a variety of things. Some say it's it's another cycle of judgments like the seven seals and like the seven trumpets and like the seven bowls. There was going to be the seven thunders as well to give us another perspective on this time between Christ's first and second coming. Or others have said it's a picture of how God is, is by telling him to seal it up, he's, he's shortening the time before the end, in some sense, for the sake of God's elect. Could be that, I don't know. But what I do believe is clearly communicated through this image, this vision, is this, that only God has a complete picture of what is and will transpire in this world. Only God knows all of it. And while he reveals some things to us, after all, this is a book called the book of the revelation of Jesus Christ. While he does reveal some things to us, there is still much that he has not revealed. We know that. We know that instinctively. And yet at the same time, aren't there ways in which we actually wish at times that we knew more? Wish that we could know more of the details. And that's where we remember, though, what Moses communicated to the Israelites of old in Deuteronomy 29.29, that the secret things of God belong to God, but the things that have been revealed are for us and for our children, that we may walk according to God's word. So you see, God gives us the big picture. He gives us the things that we need to know. It's the same thing of what we're seeing as we're going through this book of Revelation. He tells us the things we need to know. Big things like the fact that Jesus reigns. Big things like the fact that Christians in this world now, you are called to suffer, but even though you will suffer, know that you are secure and sealed. Big things like this, the unrepented wicked will ultimately be punished. Big things like this, that Christ will usher in a new heavens and a new earth. But aren't there times where you wish you could know what, what, what's going to happen tomorrow in my life? What's going to happen in my family to my loved one who's struggling with cancer? Lord, can you not tell me? And here we're reminded once again to let the secret things of God belong to God. And the encouragement here for us is this. The Lord has given us everything that we need to know to live a life of godliness in this time. He's given us all we need to walk faithfully, enduring to the end. Especially the third thing that this vision of the mighty angel communicates. Not only is it the absolute sovereignty of the Lamb, not only the secrecy of God's ways, but the last thing that this vision of the mighty angel communicates is the certainty of God's promise. That's what we see there in verses 5 to 7. That this mighty representative of Christ, what does he do? We see him raise his hand and swear by the creator of heaven and earth. This is an image like you would see in a courtroom or in Perry Mason show, right? A witness comes to the stand told to raise his right hand and swear by God to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. And so this mighty angel is swearing that he is going to tell the truth. But what exactly does he swear? And this is where you see that little word, that. What is it that he swears? That 
at the end of verse 6. There would be no more delay. No more delay. You have to understand this vision in the backdrop of what's in Daniel chapter 12. Because the very same thing was shown to Daniel. Listen to what Daniel 12 verses 6 and 7 says. It says this, And someone said to the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters and the stream, How long shall it be till the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen, who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for time, times, and half a time. In other words, Daniel was told, the things that you've seen in these visions, it's going to be a little while before the end of them all comes. After all, it was another 400 years, wasn't it? Until the Lord Jesus came to accomplish redemption. But see, now this angel, maybe it's the same angel that spoke to Daniel, we don't know, but this angel is saying to John, there will be no more delay. With the blowing of the seventh trumpet, the end will come. The good news that was proclaimed by the prophets of old will be completely fulfilled. The end will come. There's no other great redemptive act that has to happen. No other act before the final act of God's divine drama, as it were. And isn't that exactly what we see? Turn over to Revelation chapter 11 and just read verse 15. And this is where we actually see the blowing of the seventh trumpet. What does it say? Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. The seventh trumpet brings the end. No more delay. And you see what this angel is actually swearing and promising is that Christ will fulfill all of God's promises. What an encouragement to us to know that our God is faithful and true. To know, dear Christian, that though you have trials, sorrows, and tribulations now, yes, you have enemies of your soul who seek your harm now. God's promise to put them all down and to lift you up will occur. You can have confidence knowing that Jesus reigns over all. You can have confidence knowing that he's given you all that you need to know. You can have confidence knowing that he will fulfill all of his promises to you. That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. And so it's a wonderful encouragement, this mighty angel, the vision he comes in this interlude to encourage us in our times of tribulation. But that's not all we have. We also have this image of the little scroll. And so our second thing is to consider the little scroll in our commission. And just as we started with the angel, let's ask this question. What is this little scroll? And once again, we can say, this is not the first time that we've seen a scroll in the book of Revelation, is it? We saw the scroll that the Lamb took from the hand of God the Father in Revelation chapter 5. You remember in that message on Revelation chapter 5 from before that that scroll we understood to be 
God's decree, his plan of judgment and redemption, which has been set in motion by Christ's death and resurrection, but has not yet been completed. Christ takes that scroll of God's plan, and he begins to open the seals to carry out the completion of God's decree of salvation and judgment. Now, this scroll is described as a little scroll. So it's not that exact same scroll that Jesus took, which is God's decree, but a little scroll. In other words, it's given to us to to understand it as a portion of what's in that larger scroll, an abridgment, as it were, a compendium, a portion that God has chosen to reveal to us. Thus, we could say it this way, this little scroll represents the word of God. It represents scripture, what God has revealed to us. And in particular, for the Apostle John, it represents the book of Revelation that he has written down for us. And beloved, as you remember, at the heart of the book of Revelation, at the heart of what's on this little scroll is none other than the revelation of Jesus Christ and his gospel. It's what we read in verse 7 as described as the mystery of God. What's on this little scroll is the mystery of God. The mystery of God that was spoken and revealed even by the prophets of old. When the New Testament uses this word mystery, it's not talking about some kind of kind of mystery like in a detective novel that's unknown, that's still unknown to us. What it's speaking about is a mystery that was unknown in ages past, but has now been made revealed, made known. It's been revealed, made known to us. It's a revelation of the secret of ages past, particularly this secret. How is it that a holy God can save sinners? What a mystery. How can a holy God save sinful men and women, boys and girls? This is how Paul uses the word mystery in his letters, isn't it? You think of, for example, 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. Listen to what Paul says. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. And then what is it? That he was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up in glory. Do you see what Paul says the mystery is? It's the mystery of Jesus Christ and his gospel. The message of the gospel, how you and I, as sinners deserving of hellfire and damnation for all eternity, could be accepted by the holy God. We who deserve God's just wrath could instead be given God's grace. How is that possible? By God sending his son, by God, the eternal son of God, becoming man, taking on human flesh, body, and soul, that he would come as our representative to live the life that we could not live, a perfect life on this earth, and that as our representative, he would go to the cross. And that on the cross, there, 
He would conquer sin and death by dying in our place. Having the whole wrath of God that you and I deserve for our sin poured out on him. And you see, God the Father accepted this sacrifice, and we know it because, as Paul says, he was raised from the dead, vindicated by the Spirit, exalted to the highest place. And now this great mystery of ages ago is being proclaimed, and those who believe in Christ and his work receive his righteousness and the forgiveness of sins and are made a part of Christ's kingdom. The mystery has been revealed. But do you actually believe this message that has been proclaimed? And are you actually a part of Christ's kingdom? You see, isn't this, it's a message and it's a method of salvation that no human being would ever come up with, that God would come as man. Who would have thought of bringing salvation by suffering? Who would have thought of defeating death by dying? Only our all-wise God. And that's why we say, oh, the perfect wisdom of our God. The mystery. That's what this little scroll has. But, but what is the message of this vision of the little scroll for John and for us? Well, you see what happens, don't you? John does exactly what Ezekiel was told to do. He has to take this scroll and he has to eat it. That doesn't sound very appetizing to us, unless you're three years old and you like to eat paper. It's a reminder, though. It's an image. It's a vision. And it's communicating something very important, that it's not enough to have a copy of God's word in your hand or on your shelf. You see, as I've said many times from this pulpit, you must digest that word. This word that you hear being read and preached, that word that you read day by day in your own families and devotions, it must go beyond just passing over your eyes. It has to go into your soul. You have to digest it. When you eat food, It's an amazing way that God made us. It actually is broken down. And the little parts and nutrients of it actually are then carried by your blood to different parts of your body so that actually become parts of cells. Food becomes part of you. And that's what he's saying with the word. This message has to become a part of you. Inside of your soul and your heart. So much so that now your whole life is directed and animated and you live by the direction of this word. You must take these truths into your heart so that become that which is now on your lips and in your lives. Or to put it, as you'll hear this evening, as Pastor James says, you must be not only a hearer of the word, but a doer of the word. And that will only happen when you're transformed by the word, growing in grace, becoming more like Christ in your character. Again, I ask you, are you? Are you digesting the word? Or do you think that you've arrived? 
You have no more to grow in. You've heard enough sermons. You've been in this church 30 plus years. There's no more for you to grow in. You know it all. Wake up. As long as you're on this earth, you have more to learn and grow in, more Christ-likeness to be formed in you. So arise, dear Christian. Cry out to God to give you a hunger and thirst for righteousness, to give you an appetite for him and for his word, that you would once again be thrilled with the sweetness of his glorious gospel grace to you. That's not all we see. We also see that John must not only ingest this word for himself, but he is told in verse 11, go, you must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. So you see what we have in this vision is once again a commissioning of John to declare this revelation he's received from the angel who received it from Christ, who received it from God, to take it and declare it to the world. It reminds us, beloved, that we too have been given a commission, the very same commission from Jesus Christ himself. When he said in Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded and know, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is our mission This is our purpose in this world as a church, to make disciples through proclaiming the gospel and planting churches. Do you remember your commission, Grace Baptist Church? Or have you become, once again, settled and complacent, averse to difficulty or risk? not wanting to sacrifice, not wanting to give of your, of your substance until it actually hurts only the extra that you have left over at the end of the year? Are you so in love with your own comfort that you don't care about those who are destined to hell unless they hear the gospel? Beloved, this is a vision that draws us into the drama that says we need to renew our commitment once again to Christ's commission that he's given to this church. And we can do that by first praying and crying out, Lord, forgive us for our complacency. Lord, renew us in our hearts. Help us to take the gospel to those who are already around us in your providence, in our own families, our neighbors, in the workplace. It's not that we have to go out on the street and preach, though we can do that. But even in the places where we already are, Lord, help us to be faithful witnesses to Christ. But then, church, we need to do more than that. We need to pray that God would give us a Christ-sized vision, a God-glorifying worldwide vision for how we, as this church, can be more faithful with praying for the peoples, the nations, the languages, supporting those who go, and yes, even going ourselves to the ends of the earth. And beloved, as we do, as we actually get caught up into the divine drama, not being only spectators, but actually participants, as we do, we will know both the bitterness and the sweetness of the gospel. Yes, it's true. Christ doesn't hide this truth from us. We will know the bitterness. 
the bitterness of suffering, the bitterness of persecution, the bitterness of rejection, even from the members of our own families. And like our Lord Jesus, we will weep with sorrow as he wept over the city of Jerusalem because they refused to hear and believe, refused to repent. And we will know that sorrow. We already know that sorrow, that bitterness. But beloved, we also will know the sweetness. We'll know the sweetness of the salvation of some who will hear this gospel and come to Christ and become brothers and sisters with us. You will know the sweetness of the joy of obedience. Isn't that where joy is found? In obeying what Christ has commanded us to do. You know what they say. How do you make Christians feel guilty? Just start talking about prayer and evangelism. Why? Because we don't do it like we ought. But when you do, you know the sweetness of the joy of obedience. And not only that, even as we go and at times we'll experience the sorrows and the sufferings, we know the sweetness of the fellowship of Christ in the midst of those sufferings. The fellowship that you can only have with him in those sufferings. And as you experience the fellowship of Christ in those sufferings, you also, beloved, experience the joy of the power of his resurrection at work in you. That as we live out the mystery of the gospel, that we live and triumph by dying to self and serving in his power, then we will know the sweetness and he will be honored and glorified as he deserves. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again how you pause even in these visions to give a vision directed to us directly as your church. And Lord, we ask that we would feel and receive and know the encouragement of these visions and also the call and commission. And Lord, by your grace, even today, even those who are here who do not yet believe, would they have their eyes opened to the mystery of the gospel, to the wonder of a Savior who died that we might live. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's Sermon Select on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. CBTS is a confessional Reformed Baptist seminary which provides affordable online theological education to help the church in its calling to train faithful men for the gospel ministry. To learn more, visit cbtseminary.org.